We're in Acts 23. We're going to start at verse 11. But I want you to go back to the beginning. You see, one of the things that Acts does is it tells us and shows us and gives us the way to live in a pluralistic society. Listen, there's nothing new under the sun. That might even be in the Bible. There's nothing new under the sun. And here you have a group of people who followed the Lord Jesus when he was alive. He dies. They think it's over. He rises again, and they're so glad. But he goes and tells them, now I want you to go into Jerusalem and wait there. I'm going to ascend. He ascends. You wait there for the pouring out of the the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this little group of people, the book of Acts shows us they turned the world upside down. And they lived in a society that hated their ideas, that Jesus died and rose again. In fact, and that the gospel, this gospel, was available to all the world. You understand, these few uh, sermons or defenses of the faith that we've been looking at the last couple times, you realize one sermon gets to the word Gentiles, and it's open to the Gentiles, and the sermon ends because the place goes into a riot. And now, last week we saw, check this out. Do you think the enemy isn't involved when the idea of Jesus dying and rising again, paying for your sins, gets out into the marketplace of ideas? Don't you think the enemy tries to cover it up? Gentiles, it's open to all the world. Boom. The enemy tries to swoop up all that the Lord's doing. Of course, he can't totally. And last week we saw that when the word resurrection was uh, met, or even we're going to see it a little bit this, uh, this week, when the word resurrection was spoken, boom, that was hateful to people. That It's okay if you talk about God. God's fine, wonderful. But if you talk about death and resurrection, something happens, and spiritually you're, you're seeing Mobs and hatred and strife come right here in the book of Acts. In other words, we are learning and growing in and being people who can live in a society that hates the very thought of what we believe. Sound familiar? Just turn on one TV channel this afternoon. Well, don't. Come to lunch, then come to prayer at 7 o'clock. But anyway, if you did, you would see antagonism and hatred against the ideas of the gospel going out to all the world and specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection. Why? Because if Jesus rose again, then he is who he says he is, and he says he's God here on earth. Amazing. So we're learning to live in a pluralistic society. And the first thing we need to know, we say, oh, let's be better Christians. Don't say be better Christians. Say this. Let's be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what the early church was, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I know what people mean when they say be better Christians. They mean let's mature. Great, mature. But here's the key, being filled with the Holy Spirit to overflowing. How can you do any of the things that Jesus asked? 
or said or told us in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, forgive those who hate you, uh, bless those who revile you and persecute you. How could you do any of that without the person and work of the Holy Spirit? The answer is you can't. You'll get mowed down, chewed up, spit out if you're living by your flesh and doing ministry or anything by your flesh. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are seeing that. And we're seeing another thing, I think, big time. Everybody recognize and know that you're on mission if you said you wanted to be a follower of Christ. If you said you were going to give your life to Christ and devote your life to Christ and you got baptized and you're now saying no turning back and you sang the song and all that sort of thing, if you did all that, one of the things you're saying is you're signing up for the mission. Well, what is the mission? Well, the mission is this. You're dying to yourself every single day. And you're going out and uh, sharing the gospel with people so that many will come to know him in a real and saving way. You're teaching them and you're leading them to baptism and all of that. And you're discipling them and you're raising up disciples. That's the mission. So watch. So whether you get put in prison for something you didn't do, that's happened in this book, you can still sing. Whether you get stoned and beat over the head and go to meet the Lord, you say, Lord, forgive them. They don't even know. That's happened in this book. Whether you get beat on the back or punched in the face and told to get out of here and never come preaching again, then you go home and you pray and you go, you know what the Lord's telling us? Let's go back and do it again. What? All of us in here and say, Lord, thank you for getting me out of there. I'll never go back. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, man, what could man do to you? Death has been solved. And that's the message of the book of Acts. And we're going to continue to see it today. As the uh, guy named Paul, if you don't know who Paul is, Paul was a murderer of the Christians who was uh, walking up to Syria one day to go ahead and keep putting Christians in jail and badgering them and hurting them. And the Lord appeared to him and he got radically saved and he gave up all of his life, all the prestige, the power, the money, the fame, the recognition to go and serve the Lord all his life. And now he's gotten to the place that he loves most. He's been all around the ancient world of the Mediterranean area, and he's always had a heart to serve his brothers and sisters in Israel, in Jerusalem. And he finally gets the chance, and he's bringing a gift of financial aid from the Gentile churches. And I'll bet, listen, I'll bet he, like you, Paul's no superhero, he's like us. I'll bet he thought, well, when I get down there, I know the Lord told me on the road to Damascus that I'd be preaching to Gentiles and kings and all those people. But, you know, I do have a heart for Israel, and... Yes, it seems like I've been guided to Israel. When I get there and I give them this gift and I start preaching and things, I'll bet it's going to go great. And the Lord's going to turn it around and there are going to be many saved and it's going to be amazing. And he gets there and it actually said last week, Xander taught it to you, shared it with you, read it with you. It actually said that his countrymen wanted to tear him apart like an animal. They wanted to kill him. That's... What happened? And he is now in the Antonio Fortress. It's on the northwest corner of the old city of Jerusalem or the city of Jerusalem, the walled city of Jerusalem, 
Oh, wow. I didn't even know about that. That's so great. Yes, there's the Antonio Fortress. And that is where the Romans live in these barracks. And Paul now is in those barracks. And you know what? Think about it. Think, I want you to think before we go on, that some of the things that must be going through Paul's mind as he is saved by Romans, the Roman oppressors of his country. He wants to be torn apart by his countrymen. And he's in there and he's at night, night. And he must be thinking this. Why, Lord? Why in the world would you not be with me on this trip? I'm sharing the gospel. I have been, he must have been thinking, he had to have been thinking, he was a human. Lord, I've been all around the world for you. One thing I wanted more than anything in my life was to go there and it's gone really, really poorly. Why, Lord? He must have been upset, angry, bitter, He might have been saying things like this. Lord, I've been successful in ministry, and now my ministry, my ministry, seems like it's gone in the toilet. Nobody's getting saved. Nobody's responding. He must have been saying, I bet, I feel like a failure. You brought me here, and I failed. Anybody ever felt this way? Can you you just feel in the barracks of the Antonio Fortress as he got saved and taken out by the people who oppress his people, how disappointed, how bitter, how angry, how sad, how discouraged Paul must have been. I'll bet he was. And I'm asking you, I mean, do you ever feel discouraged or angry in your mission? Yes, we all have been there. And watch what happens now as we get to Chapter 23, I'm going to read verse 10. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, what commander? Those are Romans. Remember, half the battle of knowing the Bible is just knowing who the players are, and then it makes a lot more sense. The commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks and insert despair, discouragement, bitterness, anger, disappointment right there. All of those things. And look what it says in verse 11. But the following night, oh man, the night can be tough when you're by yourself and you're alone. And your thoughts, anybody else? Nobody's like this. And your thoughts start to go and you start to think about all the problems and the disappointments and the anger and the bitterness. And night can be tough and lonely and dark, of course. But the following night, listen to this. The Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, there's a lot packed into what is happening here. And the language in the Greek suggests that this was a an appearance of Christ. You get what I'm saying? Not he was dreaming this. 
There was an appearance of Christ here to Paul in this barracks, in the Roman barracks. Now, you know, when Paul was converted, we saw, sort of saw this in Acts 22. Paul was converted in Acts 9, but in Acts 22, he describes something that happened to him right after he was converted. Do you remember this? Uh, that Jesus appeared to him in the temple and uh, told him what to do. He was perplexed. He didn't know what to do. And when Paul was in Corinth in Acts 18, you can look it up in 9 and 10, and he was thinking about going elsewhere, Jesus appeared to him and encouraged him to stay. In other words, when he got discouraged, wake up at this point. When he got discouraged, the Lord appeared to him and poured courage into him. Now you say, okay, well, that's Paul, and I'm, you know, John Q. Public, and... Well, then you don't understand the gospel. and But you do understand the gospel, because Jesus gave to you, you ready? This promise. He gave to you, anyone who follows him, that he would be with us always, always, even to the end of the age. Do you know when you're on your bed at night, and you're lonely, and you're uh, in despair, you're discouraged, there's one with you, and it's Jesus. And it says he'll never leave you nor forsake you, and I have one scripture uh, to prove it to you. Actually, there's a lot of them, but I'll give you one scripture here in 1 Corinthians 127. The Bible tells you that when you give your life to Christ and surrender your life to Christ, do you know this? This is where growth happens. This is where healing happens. This is where sanctification becomes. Listen, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 127, for any who have given their life to Christ, listen, Christ is in you. He's the hope of glory. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, look, folks, how close is the hand to me? It's right there. In fact, he's so intimate with us. For those who have given their life to Christ, Christ comes in your life and lives in your heart. And he's our hope of glory. Now remember that when you're discouraged and you're in despair or you're angry or you're bitter or you have anxiety or you're fearful. Who in the world had more reason to be fearful than the Apostle Paul himself, right? Here he is. And he's disappointed and he's bitter. And the Lord comes and stands right with him, just like he always does. Why do you think Jesus or God led him down these roads to the point of bitterness? You can say, well, you can debate. Did Paul choose this or did God choose this? And I say the answer to that is yes. He went to Jerusalem. You know, there's one thing that the Lord is always doing in your life. You ready for this? I know one thing that the Lord is constantly doing in your life, constantly. He's getting rid of the self-life. He always is getting rid of the self-life because the Bible says, if you're going to be strong in the Lord, you're going to be weak. You're going to be in a position of weakness or a position where you're not relying upon your fleshly self to do the work of the ministry. And apparently, Paul still had some of that left because 
God takes him down this road, all the way down to Jerusalem. His hopes are high. He's ready to go. He's finally with his countrymen, and nothing happens. No movement, no salvation, no responses. And he's in despair, and he's in bitterness. And the Lord comes to him right at that point and says, take courage. You know it, be of good cheer means take courage. Be encouraged. I'm going to encourage you. And I want you to see something. To the Lord, what Paul did in Jerusalem registered with the Lord. Because the Lord, the Lord says here, you have testified for me in Jerusalem. In other words, watch. Even when you think your ministry is not doing anything, if the Lord's called you to it, if the Lord's with you, watch. The Lord takes note. Even if there's no tangible what you can see results, the Lord says, wow, you gave up your whole life to get down to Jerusalem. Great, we were in cooperation. I did this. I was ridding you of the self-life. You're recognizing that. But what you did was valuable and important, and I see it. That's what the Lord's saying right here. You see how the Lord is putting him back together here in the barracks of a Roman, or excuse me, of an of a enemy state. In the, in, the, in the room of an enemy state in the barracks, he said, I remember what you did in Jerusalem, and I know that you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, why Rome? First of all, Rome is in what country? Italy. And Rome is the big cosmopolitan center, and they know, the, the Lord has spoken to them, they know if they can get the gospel out in Rome, it'll explode into all the areas of the ancient world. And there were certain things that were in place at this time that allowed for that, like the Roman road that led out the Roman peace. Rome said, you guys be cool. You can practice your religion. Don't upset the apple cart. Pay taxes. You can do what you want with your religion. Just And, and so there was this sort of Roman peace even. It was the perfect time for the perfect thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so here comes Paul in the night. Or excuse me, here comes Jesus in the night to Paul. And he says to him, and he stands by him, by the way, and he says to him, be of good cheer or take courage. And if you felt like a failure, you need to be encouraged. Anybody here ever felt like a failure? I have. I felt like a failure a lot in my life. And the Lord says, bang, I can work with you now. The world says, you feel like a failure? Get on the trash heap. We can't use you. The Lord says, perfect. You're right where I need you. I'm going to do great things through your life now because you recognize you need me. So he cheers Paul. He encourages Paul. And he says, great, you've testified me in Rome, but you're also, or excuse me, in Jerusalem, but you're also going to bear witness uh, uh, at Rome. And you know, look back in 1921. Go back to 1921 of the book of Acts. 1921. Remember this, that when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And then check out Romans. Go over to Romans verse or chapter one, go there. Paul wrote the book of Romans.
And you see here, uh, here in um, what life was like in Rome. Look in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, uh, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, um, uh, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And I just wanted to read you that to show you what he's writing to the church in Rome, and his heart is bleeding for them. He understands what the culture is like. Of course, it's worldwide, but he's understand, and he wants to go to Rome. And so for now, look, the rest of Book of Acts is about Paul being a prisoner, a prisoner. And you think to yourself, now, look, he got lots of things done from being a prisoner. And I bet when he was back in Acts 19, when he said, I purposed in my heart to go to Rome. You know what I bet he thought? Oh, it's going to be amazing. I mean, Rome, all the restaurants and the things, and I can sightsee a little bit and probably... Uh, uh, you know, the Lord's going to take me there. I know it. And, you know, it's going to be an amazing cruise across the beautiful Mediterranean. And the Lord says, hey, we're going to get you there, but we're going to do it a little different way. You're going to be a prisoner for the last five years of your life. But guess what? Paul was okay with that. Why? Why was Paul okay with that? Because he was on mission. He knew his life was for something other than just recreation. He knew his life was on mission. And so he was okay, whatever way. And God reached people in this way, in miraculous ways that could only be for the Lord. So the next time you're feeling discouraged or that you haven't done anything in ministry, or God bless you, or you've tried and you've failed, you once were successful and now you're not according to success, remember the Lord comes and stands with you and says, I'll pour courage into you. And oh, by the way, I'll pour courage into you. And oh, by the way, you're not a failure at all. Now's the time that I can use you in a glorious way. Isn't that wonderful of the Lord? Now, I want to tell you some other things that I've just sort of stumbled across. Because I think what you think about verse 11 here says a lot about what your relationship is with the Lord. And I want you to know verse 11 and internalize it. And here's, here's what I mean. Everybody turn with me to Matthew 10. I want you to see something or some things. Matthew 11, sorry. Matthew 11. I want you to see some things. I'm thinking about writing a book on this topic. No, I'm kidding. You'll see why here in a minute because the book's already been written. But anyway, and it's a bestseller. But anyway... uh I think some of us think, oh my goodness, here I am, disillusioned, discouraged, disappointed, broken, despair, mad, jealous, angry, bitter. Man, God's mean. In actuality, 
God's bringing us to those places so he can show what? So he can show how tender and loving and kind he is. And here's what I mean. Look at this. If you go to Romans, or excuse me, Matthew 10 or 11, 28, you all know this verse, but I want you to see some things. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Do you, any of you feel just like you're worked to the bone, even just mentally or f- spiritually or psych, right? Or, or even physically, you're just, you're just worked to the bone and you're just weary of life and you're just, you don't know if you could go on and you're heavy laden and just everything feels so heavy. And Jesus says a real promise here. I will give you not relaxation, but rest. He'll give you rest from me. It'll come uh, from him. He'll, when you take your yoke upon or his yoke upon you and you learn from him, why? Because you know what some people, look, wait a minute, wake up right here. You know what some people could do with Paul? Here would be my tendency with Paul if I was in the barracks that night. Paul, are you an idiot? The Lord has used you for all these years. How possibly could you think that the Lord would abandon you now? That's probably something I would say in my carnality and fleshly wisdom. Maybe you'd be the same. Like, Paul, wake up. What are you talking about? And I don't see that with Jesus. Here's what, the Je- here's what Jesus did. He come and stood by him. That's the first beautiful thing. He didn't stand in front of him with his back to him. He didn't do anything. He came right beside him. I imagine that, I don't know, it doesn't say it, but man, maybe the Lord put his arm around Paul. He said, I want you to be of good cheer, not to cheer up. I want you to have biblical, spiritual courage to move forward. That's restful and peaceful. And here's how he did it. I'm convinced he did it in a gentle way. Read for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He did it gently, but truthfully, I would have gone, come on, Paul, suck it up. Come on, let's go. We got to get on with the mission. Jesus comes, puts his arm around him, shows up, first of all, puts his arm around him, and in a gentle way, that means compassionate, with compassion and lowly, not in your face, you got to do it, my way or the highway. Hey, let's talk about this, and let's think about what, what you're doing here. Let's refocus. Let's recalibrate. Remember who I am. I'm here in your presence. And if I'm here, I got you. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying it in the kindest way, in the nicest way, in the most restful way. It's way better than me saying, wake up, Paul. Jesus coming in his kindness. And he comes and he says it. He says, you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now you might just want to close the book right there, but don't close the book right there. Because Jesus goes on in the next chapter of Matthew chapter 12, and he heals some people on the Sabbath. Now think about this. The religious people get mad and angry because Jesus heals people on the Sabbath. Can you hardly believe what religious people are like? It's all external, Jesus says. It's all about them. It's not about him. And they hate and they grovel over little 
And he's saying, I'm helping somebody. And they're like, yeah, but it's on the Sabbath, man. The technicality. And Jesus comes in and says something that's, that if you catch this and you have this view of who Jesus is, it'll bless your heart in amazing ways. And he says this. But when Jesus knew it, knew what? That they were out to destroy him, the verse before. The religious people want to kill Jesus in chapter 12. Now, if I was the king of glory and I learned that people wanted to kill me and I was the king of glory, I'd zap them. But look what Jesus did. When Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. He didn't cause a confrontation. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them all, all. He just kept going on with his work. Watch, watch. I want you to have a a right concept of who Jesus is. Yet he warned them not to make him known because a lot of reasons, but that's not the point. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, now don't read it yet. How many years before Jesus' time is Isaiah written? Who is Isaiah? He's a prophet. He's a major prophet. It's about 800 to 1,000 years prior to the time of Christ. There is a prophecy in Isaiah 42 about who the Messiah is. Everybody with me? And who the Messiah is, is this. Behold, my servant. Now that's interesting because we're in Acts, remember? And in Acts, the apostles call Jesus, in Acts chapter 3, the servant of the Lord. In other words, Isaiah is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Uh, uh, Jesus is a fulfillment of Isaiah 42. Everybody with me? (laughs) Yeah, people are yawning like, yeah, I'm with you. Come on. Now watch. Behold my servant whom I have chosen Jesus quotes, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, the father speaking to the son, I'll put my spirit upon him. The dove, when he gets baptized, comes and lands on him. It's all fulfilled 800 to 1,000 years later. Look, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles and watch what Jesus is like. He doesn't quarrel. Nor scream real loud. That's what it means. Now listen, Jesus stood up to some very powerful people. Nothing wrong with standing for truth. But when you have to scream and pound your fist, listen folks, you're hiding something. Something in you. Something in me. Here's why. Because Jesus was gentle and lowly, but truthful. He had a, listen, he was a tender warrior. He was a gentle giant. He was truthful, but quiet. He's quiet, but strong. And real strength comes in that. Submission and servanthood. And you know that Jesus didn't have to lash out all the time and fight with people on Facebook and fight with people on Fox News and fight with people on MSNBC. He didn't have to do that because the power of the Lord rested on him and he loved people to tell them the truth. He didn't scream at people. I'm not saying it. If you're mad at me right now, you just read. 
Because Jesus said, here's the way that I do business by the power of the Holy Spirit. I do business this way. I don't quarrel nor cry out. I don't scream at people. I don't quarrel with them. Oh, I can see the emails now. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Uh Uh-oh. He's gentle and lowly. He goes to people individually. He talks to them. He gives them truth. He gives them love. He's gentle. And he says this, the, the Messiah, a bruised reed, he will not break. You ever been, well, we were sort of here in Corolla, North Carolina. You know, some of the water in the sound part of, you know, Corolla or the Outer Banks is a strip of land over here towards the continental United States is a sound. It's not very deep. When you get thrown off a wave cutter or something, guess what you step in? Grass. Ooh, man. You feel like, what's down there, right? You're worried. If you go to the ocean, none of that. But here's what the point is. When a little reed gets bent, you know what I do? I just grab it and rip it off and throw it away. It says that he takes a bruised reed and straightens it. It's important to him. He doesn't take people who are bent over and weak and break them up. He's gentle with them. He doesn't scream at them. He doesn't yell at them because they don't know or don't blah, 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 blah. Everybody with me. Or look next. Or a smoking flax. He won't, he will not quench. You ever had that candle at home that just sort of won't light but won't go out and it's sort of just burning and some smoke's coming from it? And you know, you take the old candle, what's the thing called? What? Okay, whatever you said. And you just go, quit bothering me. And you just cover it and smother it. Well, see, Jesus was like this, flaming the fire. I don't want you to go out. I know you're weak, and I know you're smoking a little bit, and I know but you're not doing everything for your intended purpose. I know that. You're not perfect. You don't think the same way I think. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fan the flame so that you'll burn bright gentle and lowly. This is how he approached people. This is how he uh, shared life with people. And he, uh, it says a smoking flax, he won't quench till he sends forth justice to victory and his name Gentiles will trust. And what he's saying there is, I know you people who are embroiled in this religion, this Jewish religion. Sometimes It can be a blessing because you know the scriptures and you see the coming of the Messiah, but sometimes it can be really tough because you're in, you think about all the traditions and all that sort of thing. And you're even mad that Gentiles are going to be included in the gospel. And he says, then you don't understand how gentle and lowly I am. I'm coming for all peoples, which just completely obliterates Christ obliterates classes and people's intellect. Some people are smart. Some people like me, not so smart. And he says, I love you all. Some people are rich. Some people are poor. I love you all. Some people are this color, that color. Look like this. Don't look like this. I love you. Are are naturally just sort of gregarious and some are shy. And the Lord says, you're all important. It's amazing. That's who Jesus is. And when you go back to Paul, you say, wow, no wonder Paul was encouraged and could go on. 
Because here comes the Lord, stands right beside him, puts his arm around him, says, you're not a failure, Paul. No way. Let's flame that or fan that flame back and let's keep going. And he says it to all of you. Every one of you who have given their lives to Christ, he says it to you. What are you doing? You, you feel lost. You feel hopeless. You feel like your, your wick's going to go out. You feel like a bent over reed that's just not even strong at all. Just come to the Lord. Seek his presence, you see. That's what he's saying. Isn't that amazing? Oh, man. So uh, we got through one verse. So, and look at this. And when it was day, verse 12. You're like, hey, Lord, so thankful for last night, man. You know, get up for your morning prayers. Lord, it was glorious. You put your arm around me. You poured courage into me. You took note of everything that I was doing in Jerusalem. But you said, I'm going to go move on to Rome, which, by the way, listen, folks, the Lord's not going to take you out of this life until he's your time. You get that? And here he is, and you know, you're doing your morning prayers, and it's just been so glorious, and you know, you got the halo on that morning, and you have your favorite vanilla coffee in your journal, and everything's perfect, and you're writing in it, and it's amazing, and then you go out the door, and it says this, and when it was day, okay, reality sets in, back to work, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Thank you, Lord. Uh, There's a hit out on my life now. And they came to the chief, and they came to the chief. Why do you think this is like this? Because the Lord knew he would need courage. He got to the end of himself for ministry. Lord pours into him because he knew moving on, he was going to need courage. And the next day, courage is needed. There were more than 40, 40 killers. You see this? The Bible is real, man. 40 killers formed a conspiracy, and they came to the chief priests and the elders, in other words, the big-time people of the Jewish religion, and said, hey, we've bound ourselves under a great oath that we're going to eat nothing. We're going to fast until we've killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down. So they're saying, hey, Jewish Supreme Court, we want you to play a part in tricking the Roman commander so that he will bring him down to breakfast the next day or wherever, and we'll knock him off or stab him or do whatever. We want you to play a part. Think about that. The Jewish Supreme Court is supposed to go to the Roman commander and play a trick on him so they can murder Paul. That's what they had the audacity to ask. That tomorrow he'd be brought down as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we're ready to kill him before he comes near. Now watch, we're introduced to a person we've never met before, we don't know about, and we'll never see again. (laughs) But it's interesting. So when Paul's sister's son, I think that's his nephew. Oh, good, thank you. Because I get that mixed up a lot. When Paul's sister's son, now here's just some of the things you know about Paul. He used to be part of that council. He was part of the 70 ruling member. So maybe, I don't know, his sister was in the know too, right? Paul was a big-time socioeconomic high-up guy. So maybe the mom or his sister, excuse me, ran in those circles, and maybe the nephew just overheard something, but we don't know. And all of a sudden, he knows about this ambush, and somehow, some way, listen, 
he goes in the barracks and tells Paul, which is interesting because apparently even though Paul was in the barracks, he could receive people. I don't know. And then Paul called one of the centurions, one of the Roman guards or soldiers to him and said, hey, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. Now, I got to tell you something, folks. This reminds me, this is how weird I am. This reminds me of Esther. You know, one of the great things about the book of Esther, write this down. God's providence. God provides. God is sovereign. Two different things. Providence, sovereignty. God is sovereign in control of everything, and God provides and orchestrates everything. In the book of Esther, you read it, and you go, how could this have happened to save a nation? And one little thing happens after the next, and and you're like, this is amazing, and God had his hand on all of it. And I'm convinced... This bio, this happened this way. It was real history. I believe it happened because it shows that God is provident. He orchestrates all things and provides all things. Why? So his mission can go forward. Paul was promised to go to Rome. An assassination attempt of 40 men. I mean, this is like Shakespeare before Shakespeare was even Shakespeare. And 40 men are going to kill him, and they're going to get the Supreme Court involved to go to the Romans, the hated Romans, sugary, sweet, nice, ask, could you please just bring Paul down for breakfast tomorrow? We want to talk to him about something, then uh, in the back. That's what they wanted to do. And so the Lord knows it. He knows the schemes of man. And look what he does providentially in, 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 in his sovereignty. He just so happens that his sister's son hears of the ambush who gets let into the Roman barracks. Are you kidding me? And he tells Paul, and then Paul calls one of the centurions and says, take this young man to the commander. Who in the world gets to have an audience with the commander? Not some little kid. But the Lord orchestrates it. For he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. And by the way, you know, this commander, he's a Roman, guys. You mess up in his presence, whack. So the commander took him by the hand. Isn't that interesting? That's why some people believe he was a little kid, took him by the hand. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't. We don't know. But he took him by the hand. Maybe it was to protect him. Don't know. Went inside and asked privately, well, tell me what you have to tell me. And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him. Men who have bound themselves by an oath that they'll neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for the promise from you. By the way, in verse 20 there, it says that the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down, which tells us, look, the 40 went to the council and the council said, okay. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, my. We'll, We'll participate. The religious rulers of Israel said they would participate. 
Amazing. So now watch what happens. So the commander left the young man or let the young man depart and commanded him and tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions saying this. Now, can you imagine? Look, if you're 40 assassins, come on, folks, you got somebody scouting out the barracks, don't you? Don't you have your eyes on the barracks? Don't you have some sort of spy, somebody to see if Paul's leaving or Paul's going in? Don't you have somebody? Yes, of course you have somebody, I would think. And here, all of a sudden, things are happening in the barracks, and you go, okay, you know, maybe they're just preparing. It's the night before. It's supposed to be tomorrow morning. And you're out there, and you're sort of, you know, you got your sunglasses on and your trench coat and all that. And he calls for two centurions, says, here's what I want you to do. Prepare 200 soldiers. I want 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at 9 o'clock tonight. (laughs) You got your spies. And all of a sudden you see 200 foot soldiers, uh, you know, people on horses and people that have spears. And you're like, I'm part of the 40. I, I don't think I can, we can defeat 470, right? In other words, the Lord has you in his providence and sovereignty until it's your time to go. Don't fear. When it's your time to go, you'll go. But until then, he encamps angels around you, the Psalms tells us. Isn't it amazing? So he does it, and uh, they're out there, and they're probably like, what's happening? I mean, 470 soldiers, and then he tells them they're going to go to Caesarea. Now, I wish I was organized enough to get you that map. But anyway, Caesarea is up to the north of Jerusalem and out to the west. Oh, look at this. Oh, I am, I am organized enough. So Jerusalem, out to the west and up to the north, and uh, they're going to head up to this beach town called Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is a beautiful, beautiful place. And for many years... People thought the Bible was lying about how beautiful it was. But a guy named Herod the Great built a whole complex there, and guess what happened? It got unearthed. And it's the second visit on our visit to Israel. You go to this place, and Herod uh, built a Colosseum there. He built a hippodrome for horses. They're still there. And uh, it's right on the beach, and it's beautiful. And here's what I want to tell you. It became the Roman uh, city for base of operations while they were in Israel. And you say to yourself, well, why? Well, when you get there, you'll know. Because it's so beautiful. Of course the Romans put it there. They put put their base there. And so what he's saying is, what uh, the commander is saying, if we just get him to Caesarea, nobody is going to touch Paul. He'll be in Roman occupied city territory. And I don't know if you're getting what I'm getting at here, and I'm going to just keep going back to it. Nobody's taking you until it's your time. No matter what things look like, No matter what forces are against you, the Lord has plans for you and is going to use you until it's your time to go, no matter what it looks like. And here, you think about it. You have Paul 
a Christian. Nero, the Caesar, is killing Christians and hates them and all that sort of thing. And this Roman commander is giving the full force of the Roman army to head up to Caesarea so Paul will be protected. Now, of course, he's a prisoner, but he's alive. And he's doing his thing. And so, watch. And so he calls for this. They are going to go to Caesarea at night and provide mounts to Paul. Isn't that funny? Paul's riding on a horse. I mean, is the Lord good or what? And he puts him on a horse, and he brings him safely to Felix, the governor. Now, what's a governor? A governor is a leader, or, you know, they called Pontius Pilate a governor, right? And he was several years ago with Jesus. Now we're at a different governor, and it's a guy named Felix. And Felix is cruel. Felix is the only Roman governor in the history of Rome that was formerly a slave. He was a slave, and his brother was good friends with the Caesar, and he got him this job as the governor, and he sort of had a complex. So he ruled with an iron fist, and he was ruthless. And that's who this Felix is. And they take him to Felix and bring him to the governor. And the, the letter was written from Claudius, the commander, to the governor, Felix. And he said this. By the way, Felix married Drusilla, not the girl from, you know, Dalmatians. But Drusilla, who was the daughter of Herod Agrippa. He married a daughter of Herod Agrippa. And so he was, they were all sort of tied together there, the Herods and the Romans. Watch. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. He writes it in uh, uh, light that's most favorable to him because he doesn't tell them that he was going to scourge them, scourge him, but he sort of leaves that out. Comes with the troops, I rescued him, having learned he was Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or change. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the men, I sent him immediately to you. That's not true. <laughs> but anyway, uh, also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris halfway. Of course, they got halfway. And what happens is, you don't see it there, I don't think. Oh, yeah, you do. Look, Antipatris is just on the inside of Samaria, so they're outside of Judea, so now he's safe. The Jews don't go into Samaria. And so, why? Because some people are puzzled why he lets some of the army go. And the next day, they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. Why? Because he's safe now. They wouldn't go up there. And when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. They presented Paul to him. Now, this is fascinating. Do you remember when Paul got saved? It said, you're going to get saved. You're going to talk to Gentiles. You're going to stand before kings and councils. And, you know, I'm going to reiterate it again. He probably thought, well, you know, I've always studied my whole life and I got all these degrees in Judaism. I'll probably, you know, be, you know, doing some things in the universities and teaching guys and I'll have these titles. And But the Lord fulfilled it through being a prisoner. <laughs> but Paul didn't care. By the way, he told his followers, you'll stand before kings and councils. Folks, and what does he say there? He says, when you get there, 
Don't worry about what to say. The Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance what you should say or can say. And here's what I want to tell you. I think this is important. You're no different than Paul. Why? Because you have the person and work of the Holy Spirit. If you and I will come to the place where we say, I'm weak, but you are strong. Come into my life. How do we evangelize? What do I do? Listen, in any one of your circumstances, whether it be in prison or you're going to find yourself standing before important people, less important people, middle important people, of course, to Jesus, they're all important, and you're going to give the gospel. You're going to be in places you never dreamed of. It's the most exciting life ever. And so... Paul uh, does that, or he gets there, and when the governor, verse uh, 34, had read it, he asked what province was he from, and he understood that he was from Cilicia, near Turkey or Turkey, and he said, hey, I'm going to hear you when your accusers have come, and he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium or Herod's palace, and this palace was right on the beach, folks, in the Mediterranean, a lavish palace built by Herod the Great. You can see some of its... um, uh, remnants, foundations in the water in the beach there. And it was the official residence of the Roman curators. And look, as we wrap up right here, we're learning and growing in what it's like to live in a society that hates the idea of the gospel going out to all the world and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It hasn't changed, folks. And we're learning that. And what do we need more than anything? We need the presence of the Lord. You need times of rest and the Lord to love on you and be gentle and lowly with you and speak to you and sing over you. And those times come when you're by yourself and he can do his work and build you up and talk to you. And he does it in here in corporate worship and he builds us up and he keeps us relying upon him and trusting him through his presence, his presence. He's here where two or more are gathered. There I am also. Why do you think Jesus gives us these sorts of commands? Because it's the presence of God that's the whole summary of the Bible. The presence in the garden, Genesis. The presence in, uh, in, uh, of living together with him forever in the garden. It's him that heals. You need his presence. I need his presence Christ in us, the hope of glory. But then, what else does this tell us? Man, it tells us that until we go, until it's our time, and I know we don't know the time, but the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, what could death do to us? Where's the sting of death for the Christian? Because To be absent here is to be present there in the presence of the Lord. So what can he do to us? Why do we fret and worry about all of that when we know until that time he's got us protected no matter what it looks like? So go and do the mission. That's another lesson from this chapter. And then the final lesson that we just talked about. God's going to give you a platform. I don't know what it is. It might be the next door neighbor you've been praying for for 30 years, never talked to you, won't talk to you, hates everything you stand for. Maybe they're going to someday see 
have a relative die or get fired from a job or get cancer or something, they're going to come and say, who is this Jesus you serve? Maybe that's it. I don't know. But there's going to be platforms and excitement of people to love and to share that you'd never even dream of because God will do above everything that you could ask or even hope for or think. Listen, you might be saying to yourself, but I, you know, I'm not a very important person. And the Lord says, perfect. He's gentle. And he's kind. And he loves you. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come and we thank you, Lord, for this amazing word. What a great word, Lord, for those of us who are struggling or feel like a failure or whatever. Lord, you're so gentle and kind to us. Fill us with your spirit so that we could be gentle and kind and truthful with others. Patient with the unpatient. Loving to the unlovable. Kind to the angry. And Lord, help us to share and to love with people we'd never even dreamed of. It could be the person down the street, person in the White House, or anybody in between, Lord. Whoever you choose. Thank you, Lord, for your protection and providence until the day we go home to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen.